Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, um, uh, verses 1 to 12. Mark, chapter 2, 1 to 12. Um, if you haven't got a Bible, no worries. We'll be projecting it up on the screen um, later. So, welcome to Jubilee Church Teesside. Uh, I want to reiterate very briefly Simon's thank you. Uh, generosity has always, always, as long as I've been here at Jubilee, been a mark of God the Holy Spirit on this church, on you. Such is Jesus' love that our God, hear this, chooses to partner with us. He wants us to join him on this great adventure of faith. Um, and a big part of that is your generosity, your giving. Year in, year out, month in, month out. So thank you all. Thank you, Jesus, for this uh, amazing offering. And I'll ask you to pray for us. Pray for us as elders and other people involved in these decisions. Pray for God's wisdom as we prayerfully steward this gift. I often, you know, I can't, I can't help but um, hear him when, when Sarush prays for um, gifts like this. He often says, Lord, make it go beyond what is that we can see in the human flesh. He often says, make it do amazing things. And uh, I want to reiterate that prayer. Pray for us. Pray for this offering. If you're a visitor uh, here this morning, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. We're going to be continuing our sermon series, Hello Jesus, Encounters with the Living God. You see, all the songs we've been singing this morning, Shirley, the rest of you guys, led us wonderfully in worship. You don't know how helpful that is, as before you bring on the message, before you bring the message, when the worship and when the presence of God, it gives you confidence. It gives you encouragement. So thank you guys for facilitating, help us, helping, us, helping us in all of that. You see, the songs we sing uh, this morning, all the prayers that we've been praying, the contributions that you have heard so far, they all point to this figure in human history that has shaped your world, my world, more than anybody, anything else ever. Jesus is uh, the most influential person to have set foot on this planet Earth. That is an uncontroversial statement. I said that on Alpha when we used to do the talks fact. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this Jesus wants to say hello to you. Yeah. Um, or if you're new, or if you're kind of just uh, rediscovering what your Christian faith has been over the years, Jesus says hello. Are you up for that? Are you ready for that this morning? Jesus will surprise you. Let's read this morning's encounter. Mark 2, 1 to 12. After a few days... After a few days, Jesus returned to Capernaum and the word of God got round that he was back home. A crowd gathered, jamming the entrance so no one could get in or out of the house. He was teaching the word. They, bought a, they brought a paraplegic to him, a man who couldn't walk, carried by four men. When they weren't able to get into the house because of the crowd, they removed part of the roof and lowered the paraplegic on this stretcher. This, is, this really happened. Yeah. Um, impressed by their bold belief, their faith, Jesus said to the paraplegic, Son, I forgive your sins. 
Some religious scholars, uh, teachers of the law, sitting there started whispering among themselves. Last time I preached, remember, they started muttering. That's what Jesus does to the religious people. He can't talk that way, they said. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. Clever guys. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking and said, why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler, to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, get up, take your stretcher, and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man, God eternal, and authorized to do either or both, he looked now at the paraplegic, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And you know what? The man did it. Got up, grabbed his stretcher, and walked out with everyone there watching him. They rubbed their eyes, incredulous, and then praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. I think this is the message version, isn't it? It sounds like the message version. Did it? Oh, well, anyhow, don't worry. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus for these encounters. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to imagine who God is, but actually we meet the living God in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your answer to when we say, why don't you do something, Lord? Why don't you sort this out, sort that out? Actually, your life, your coming to earth, all these encounters point that you already have done something. That's what we've been singing about this morning. It is finished. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we look at uh, this encounter, I pray that you will impart something of your spirit in us, faith in us, to see that we can, with your help, with your spirit, change a little part of the world that you have put us in. I pray, give us faith for that this morning. I pray, um, show us who you are this morning. I pray, um, let the gospel For those people who don't know Jesus in this room, let the gospel capture your heart this morning with its beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. So it couldn't get more dramatic, could it? News spread like wildfire that Jesus was back in town. Homes were packed, you couldn't get in. Then suddenly as Jesus is teaching life-giving truth, chunks of first century plaster start dropping from above. Everything stops. Everybody looks up. And to their surprise, they can see four pairs of hands rooting around, making a hole in the roof. Bigger and bigger, wider and wider. What on earth is going on? And then suddenly, a paraplegic man starts getting lowered down on ropes through the roof. Center stage. There you go, Jesus. Hello! Wow. Imagine it. We've got Jesus' attention now, haven't we, boys? Question. Are you that eager, desperate to get the attention of Jesus on a daily basis? To look into the eyes, into his eyes. That's what this picture is about. It's a bit confusing, but once you get it, to look into his eyes in your worship time, prayer time, intimate, silence time, getting before Jesus regularly can be a struggle, can't it? I certainly know that. What's your plan? Because these guys had a plan. 
That's just an extra. And so this man is lured, yeah, through. And then what we've just read is a conversation between Jesus, the paraplegic man, and others in the room. And what is so jaw-dropping here is that Jesus shocks them, shocks the crowd in so many different ways. They're gobsmacked by what Jesus says. So much so that by the end of it, they rubbed their eyes incredulous and then praise God saying, we've never, ever, ever seen anything like this. When I read this, I get excited. Can you tell? Let's walk through it, shall we? Because that's the gospel right there. The joy news of Jesus. So, um, falling plaster, hands, rope, boom. He's right there. Can't walk. Desperate. So what does Jesus say to him? What does Jesus say to him? Son, your sons are forgiven. Not son. Sorry? What did I say? Sons, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that right? No. Son, I forgive your sins. Keep to the text. What do you think of that? What a fascinating thing to say. What a shocking thing to say. Jesus should have gone to spec savers, shouldn't he? I don't think somehow that son, your sons, your sins have been forgiven, whatever it is, is exactly what this guy was wanting to hear to you. He can't walk. You see, this guy had probably been, been lame from birth. His disability would, would have been all and everything to him. His whole life will have been lived out on a mat, a few feet long, a few feet wide. This would have shaped how he saw himself and how others saw him. Someone will have needed to feed him, to clean him every day. He'll have probably been a beggar, no money, no job, no influence, no future, and nobody. And so now he's here, the moment that he's been waiting for, before this very Jesus that he's been hearing so much about and thinking so much about. I have made it here. I am before this wonderful Jesus. Jesus, give me the desperate desire of my heart. Make me walk again and all my troubles will be over. Make me walk again and I'll be the happiest man alive. I'll never complain again. I'll be set for life. Give it to me, Jesus. Son, your sons, are, your sins are forgiven. This is gonna. So we got point two. No, no, we'll finish point one first. Sorry, there's no points. I'm going through the story. You got that, didn't you, Luke? Luke's my biggest sermon critic. We have a long discussion afterwards. But now that he's started to speak in devoted groups, I'm going to turn the tables around. <laughs> you see the tension here, don't you? We get to, but we know that Jesus sees deeper. Jesus never wastes his words. This shouldn't surprise us at all. Jesus sees the bigger problem in this man's life. Jesus sees that happiness for this man is much more wider, broader, higher than just his disability. And you know what? That offends us. It shocks us. Jesus sees not his, Jesus sees not his disability, but his, but his sin as his greatest problem, his biggest deal. Jesus knows that the truth is this. 
Give him two months or so. Give him four months, maybe. After he's gotten over the excitement of being healed, miraculously healed by Jesus, you know what? Life will kick in. The world will grumble on. Whatever life requires of of him, the excitement won't last. That is is day-to-day. We see that on a daily basis. The excitement never lasts, actually. He's saying by just... Jesus is saying by just asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. That's not going to bring you everlasting joy and excitement. He's saying if you want real, everlasting, unbreakable happiness, if you want real joy, you need much more than a temporary healing. Hear this, hear this. You need to change the very thing your heart most wants what Jesus says to him. That's what Jesus says sin is. Putting other things before God. A heart in rebellion towards God. Saying, Jesus, I don't need you. I can go it alone, thanks very much. I'll chase this and that and everything that's going. But those things, other things, never truly satisfy, do they? Never. If you haven't come to that conclusion yet, you will. Just give it time. Prince Charles said, no, once said, there remains deep in the soul, if I dare use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. We've been hearing all about that on our Alpha course, haven't we? Haven't we? Sunday, Sunday nights are becoming increasingly exciting. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of our guests said to me, you've upped the game this week, haven't you? I thought, it's not me really. It's the power of the gospel. Another guest said, I've been thinking about the importance of forgiveness all week. Another guest said, I haven't got anything to rely on. That person came to the conclusion that they haven't got anything to rely on when things go wrong. She said, that's why I'm here. Keep praying, Jubilee, for these guys. They're on a journey like we've all been on. The journalist Cynthia Heimel once wrote about her experience of some celebrities uh, that she got to know throughout her life. And she noted before they became famous how hard they worked striving for fame and stardom. How, however, finally, when they became famous, when they got there, and um, when they got all their success that they were looking for, it was very different. You often read that in biographies at the last few pages. Every one of them, she says, became more manic and angry and unhappy and unstable. She writes, now their wrath is awful. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She's quite in your face, this lady. And hear this. And then she goes on to say this, which really tugged on my heart. Because people think this. She said, I think God wants to play a really rotten practical joke. I think, sorry. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Startling, but very insightful. Jesus says to this man, I am not going to play that rotten trick on you. I'm not that kind of God. 
I'm not going to just grant your deepest wish until it's no longer your deepest wish. I'm going to grant you my deepest wish, a wish and desire that flows from my desperate love for you, a longing for you like a husband loves his bride. I'm going to heal your soul. Your sin will never, ever be a wall between us anymore. I love you that much. If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus wants to show you this very same love. He knows what he's talking about, much more than you, actually. Whatever you think is the desperate desire of your heart, he sees deeper. He promises to give you what your heart most needs, what's most nourishing to your heart. Not a set of rules and regulations, that's what people think religion's all about. Not the latest thing to make everything okay. Not a plaster over an infected wound. Nothing, none of those. That's not what we declare here. That's not what the Bible says. He wants to give you the, the tangible love of God, a love you can taste, feel, see, be transformed by, a relationship with God that brings life to the full. That's how the Bible describes it. Cherished son, beautiful daughter, I forgive your sins, says Jesus. Will you receive that gift this morning? Let's read on. Secondly, we're shocked. These guys, they were shocked by Jesus's, um, by who Jesus said he was. Notice how the religious people respond, verses 6 to 7. Some religion scholars sitting there started whispering among themselves. He can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. Mutter, mutter. They're right. By forgiving this man's sin, he was essentially saying that all sin was against him, against him against Jesus because you can only forgive the sins that are against you and if you really think about that only your creator God can say that no one else who else can forgive the sins of everybody they got the reality of what Jesus was saying and it shocked them to the core Jesus was claiming to be God the Messiah and everybody in the room knew it he did it time and time again, didn't he? In your face. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, God, except through me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For I have come down from heaven. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and judge the heavens and the earth the living and the dead. If I was to say that, what would you think? Nada. Correct, Bill. <laughs> There's no beating around the bush in these statements, is it? This, th that, and that's just a few of them. There's loads more. Muhammad never said those things. Buddha never said those things. They're never dead. That would, they would be lying. But Jesus did. Lots and lots and lots. Famous theologian, um, Bono, from the, uh, from the uh, rock band U2. If you're younger than me, probably some of our young guys might have never even heard of this band, but they were good. But anyhow, he's a Christian. I, he said this, Bono, 
I don't think you're let off easily by saying he, Jesus, was a great thinker or a great philosopher only. Because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why he was crucified. So either, in my view, Bono's view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years or more, have been touched, have, had their, have, have felt their lives touched and inspired by just some nutter. I can't believe that. The people of Jesus' day were shocked by who he said he was. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. It's nearly Christmas, isn't it? Celebrating that God in the person of Jesus would come to us. If you want to know more of God in your life, look at Jesus. Never let your eyes drift jubilee anywhere else. Never let your thinking dwell anywhere else. We're all nodding. I can see us all nodding. But actually, amazingly, fascinatingly, people do drift. Over the years, I've seen that in this room and other rooms. I've thought about it. There's been times where I've thought about it. Faith and doubt live scarily together. Hold fast to Jesus' jubilee. God himself, as, as God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Finally, they were shocked by the cross. The next part of the conversation is fascinating. It's all fascinating. It says this, 8 to 12. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking and said, why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler, to say to the paraplegic man, the man who couldn't walk, I forgive your sins, or to say, get up and take your stretcher and start walking? Two choices. Did you know, this is one of the greatest Bible puzzles questions of all time. Um, in fact, one of the Bible Greek geeks that I read, no, he's a nice guy actually, I don't know him personally, but he is a good guy. He said this, millions of words have been written about this question over 20 centuries. Is that right? Yeah. And still we don't know the answer. Which What's the question? It's this. Which is simpler, says Jesus, to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, get up, take your stretcher and start walking? Which one is it? Hands up who thinks it's forgive your sins. Hands up who thinks it's get up and walk. A few more. The jury's out. You see, when you first read it, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Of course, it's much easier to say, hey, dude, I forgive you, than to make him miraculously, supernaturally get up off his feet and start walking. Easy peasy. That's an obvious answer. But it's not as simple as that. Look closer. When Jesus uses the verb say here, the Greek word is much more than just to utter words, to blurt something out. It means uttering words that actually make something happened. Words with power. Like when God creates the world in Genesis. Words that have a certain effect. When Jesus says, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home, his very words make that happen in the man. His healing breath. Amazing. Amazing. But how does this help us answer the question? Well, this is it. When Jesus says, I forgive your sins, 
He's saying it's one thing for me to heal you, but it will be very different, much, much harder, infinitely harder for me to affect, put into action the forgiveness of your sins. Much harder. Why? Because he's looking to the infinite agony of the cross. Jubilee, this is the mystery and wonder of Christianity, isn't it? We worship a sovereign, strong, in control, all-powerful, mighty, suffering God. It's a car crash, that, isn't it? But you see, the God of the Bible, right from the Old Testament, is a God who cares. He feels our pain. He hurts for us. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, particularly, God's people, Israel, are described as Ephraim. Do we have an Ephraim in the room? Or has he gone out? God's people, Israel, are described as Ephraim. Very personal, intimate, beautiful, actually. And God says about his people, he says this in Jeremiah 31, 20, Is not Ephraim my dear son? The child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, my people, declares the Lord. In Hosea 11, 8-9, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel, my people? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you. Beautiful words of intimacy to the people of God. Ephraim. You see, the more you love someone, the more that person's grief and pain becomes yours. Doesn't it? When one of my patients is, is, is diagnosed with breast cancer, that is really bad news. But when my mom told me she had it, that tore me apart. When one of my patients hung himself, not that long ago actually, I was shocked, I was upset. But when my brother did a similar thing in the car, I was broken. You see, those emotions and feelings with those who are dearly loved to you are ripped large in God for us, his cherished children. Do you get it? His Ephraim. That was the Old Testament. There's loads like it in the Old Testament. But then Jesus, God himself, comes on the scene, doesn't he? He suffered. He experienced the ordinary pressures, difficulties of human life, weariness, thirst, distress, grief. His suffering was such that he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, says Hebrews. Don Carson, a Bible teacher, says this, writes this, The God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about, not merely in a way that God knows everything, but by experience. He's been there. And on the cross, we see the, we see the great, we've been singing about it this morning, we see the greatest expression of God's suffering. He was abandoned, denied and betrayed by all the people who he'd poured his life into. On the cross he was forsaken even by his Father in heaven whose love for him had lasted since the beginning of time. Never broken before, now silenced. Jesus' ultimate and greatest loss 
the loss of a perfect, forever, eternal love. Why? Why on earth would God do that? Answer, because he really loves us. Really. But he also loves justice and righteousness. This God can't do wrong. He wouldn't be worth worshipping if he, if he did. He can't sweep sin under the carpet as if it didn't matter like we always do. God the Son took the punishment we deserved, including the greatest of all punishments that we deserve, being cut off from God forever. He took, his, he took into his own self, his own heart, this infinite agony out of love for us so that we would never have to. That's the mystery jubilee. That's the beauty jubilee of the gospel. The joy news, the good news of Jesus. Which is simpler to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, which is easier, that, or say, get up and take your stretcher and start walking. A question that agonized Jesus when he, said, when he asked it. One Bible writes this, one Bible teacher writes this, on the cross, the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person to have ever lived, becomes the very operation that abolishes sin. The maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete a victory could be imagined. And you know what? As baffling as it sounds, as bewildering as it looks, this suffering God brings hope, brings meaning and restoration in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the world's suffering. You see, we don't suffer alone. In our suffering, He is there. In our fiery furnace, He is alongside of us. By His suffering and His perfect sovereign, by His suffering and His perfect sovereignty, we can know that there is meaning to all of our suffering. That the world isn't just a random a set of events in the great casino of life. A scary thought. We don't always understand this meaning. We might not always see what God is doing. Often we don't. But we can trust Him and know His love and presence right there in the midst of distress and hurt and pain. Because He's been there too. And amazingly, this suffering, His suffering, Jesus' suffering, is the answer to all suffering. On the cross, God just doesn't punish evil. He reverses it. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible promises us. A new heaven and a new earth. John Calvin said, on the cross, destruction was destroyed. Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. Death, dead. Mortality, made immortal. Revelation 7.16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb Jesus at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jubilee, I know there are times 
when God feels distant. I've been through that. He feels not there. You felt it. I've felt it. At, the, at, at Alpha, Baz Muhammad, Kevin, Haley shared how they felt it too. I can't explain it. Suffering is a mystery. But what I do know is this. None of us, none of us will find comfort and rest by endlessly focusing on that suffering, trying to answer why again and again. None of us will find peace and strength by reliving and reviewing our suffering. None of us. It doesn't work. What brings rest and release? It's lifting our eyes above our suffering, above our hurt, above our sorrow, and meditating on the cross of Jesus Christ, the real cross. There is no greater encouragement and no greater motivation for everything that God has called you and me to do in this life through this church than to recognize His love for you in His darkest hour and receive His care for you in your darkest hour. How do we do that? We look to the cross every day. We cherish it. We worship Him as we've done this morning. We recognize that no matter what we are going through, Jesus understands. Jesus cares. Jesus knows what He is doing. Even if we can't make sense of it. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you is the cry of the writer of Hebrews about Jesus. Christianity never claims to be able to offer a full explanation of all of God's reasons behind every instance of evil and suffering. But it does, but it does have the final answer. And its answer is an answer of justice, hope, and joy. That answer will be given for all of us to see at the end of history when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And all who hear that answer, unlike now, will see its fulfillment right there and will find it completely satisfying and infinitely sufficient. It will make sense. The Apostle Paul writes this to end. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. Remember what he went through. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, liberated from life's bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Therefore, Jesus, let us draw near with confidence the band can come up, come up. that would be great. Therefore, Jubilee, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, Jesus himself, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need.